0: This is FemPower Health. Each week, top women's health experts dispel fact from fiction. The most important pelvic floor exercise is not the Kegel, challenge the status quo. It's, it's never is- easy to yeah.
1: challenge the accepted leaders
0: Painful sex is not something women should have to suffer through, yet women struggle to find answers and or grin and bear it for a variety of reasons. Enter Dr. Jill Kraft. She is a board certified obstetrician gynecologist and specializes in female sexual pain disorders at the Center for Vulvovaginal Disorders. So, today we talk about the foundations of the female parts, the symptoms related to pain with sex, and then she walks us through the four main causes for pain with sex and the typical treatments for each of those causes. And she also talks about how you can find support because admittedly, your general OBGYN is not trained on all of these details. So take a listen to Dr. Kraft.
1: So let's talk about vulvodynia. Vulvodynia basically translates into vulvar pain. And it's Fairly common. Uh, If we look at the statistics that are out there that we know of, up to 28% of women between the ages of 18 to 40 have had chronic vulvar pain at one point in their lives. And by chronic, I mean a three month stint of vulvar pain or longer. Um, And that translates to 14 million women in the United States alone. So this is not an uncommon thing. Uh, the, The sad thing about it is about half of those women will seek care for the pain that they have, um, which is incredibly low. Um, really, we only start to see patients start to seek care if it starts to affect their relationship. A lot of women will just avoid, um, will avoid intimacy altogether is what we see. And I think the other thing that's kind of shocking is that for women who do seek care, that you know, uh, 60% of them saw three or more doctors for their condition. And out of those women, about half of them did not even receive a diagnosis. Uh, And so this just highlights the the issue at hand when we're talking about vulvar pain on the part of providers and then an access to care and education for for patients.
0: So let's start with defining vulvar pain, because there's different categories of pain that I hear. And I don't want to make assumptions. I always like to like pretend I know nothing and like start from there. So we're very clear with women, because I think you're going to dive into like solutions and, and things like that. So, you know, you hear period pain cramps, you know, you hear UTIs and pain with that. And then there's this, is it same different? Like when you're saying pain, can you help define what that might be, knowing that it's probably is a little bit different in how it manifests with women. But I guess if you can just give us a general idea of what that might be.
1: Yes. So it comes in different types, but generally we're talking about burning, irritation, discomfort, rawness, dryness, all of these different descriptors of uncomfortable feelings in the vaginal area. Most women will say vaginal pain, but what they're really referring to is the vaginal entrance, which is actually a part of the vulva. So in order to understand these pain conditions, I think we should probably first start with some basic anatomy. I was just going to say, can you do that please? Because there's actually a thing, the Guardian from the UK, they
0: came to Madison Square Park here in Manhattan and they they created like a, a really big vulva that actually, was it, I, I, whatever body parts it was, because it included a lot of different parts. And I know we have to be very clear because the way we use terminology as women is usually incorrect. And they tried to get women to identify the female parts and people couldn't do it. And it's all on video. So I was actually going to say, before you die, go, keep going, please educate us because most of us aren't taught what our parts even are even though we all know what a penis is which is like a whole other story like
1: (laughs) absolutely it's true it's true and so it's so important to start there to know what we're talking about and it's essential to be able to know the parts because it gives it empowers you and it also allows you to be on the same page with your with your healthcare provider when you're communicating about where your pain or discomfort or symptoms are located and so so in general the vagina is what we usually call this entire area however the vagina is really that muscular tunnel or tube that's located inside the body that connects the vaginal opening or outside to the uterus or the womb. And the entranceway to the uterus or womb is called the cervix. So the cervix is located at the top of the vagina. When your women's health provider is doing a speculum exam uh, for say a pap test or a cervical cancer screening or to collect swabs to test for an infection, um, that person is basically inserting a, a speculum or a device that goes into the vagina that kind of opens up the vagina. The vagina is a potential space. So it's usually the walls of the vagina are touching each other or they're, cl- or they're closed. Um, and they're looking basically at the top, at the vaginal walls, which are, um, which are located all around when you're doing an exam such as this. And then they're looking at the cervix, which looks like a little pink donut, uh, located at the top. What we're concentrating on when we're talking about vulvar pain conditions and sexual pain and pain with intercourse is often not any of those things that I described. It's often the entrance of the vagina as well as the external area. And this is all part of the vulva. So the vulva is the part that we can see with our eyes. Uh, It's the external area, including the labia. So you have labia majora, which are the hair-bearing labia, as well as labia minora, which are the smaller labia that are located a little bit internally to that. We're talking about the clitoris, which is located at the top, the clitoral hood, which is like the hoodie on top of the head of the clitoris. And then we're also talking about the perineum, which is the area between the vaginal opening and the anus um, down below where stool comes out. And so there's an area within the labia minora that forms the entrance to the vagina. And that area is called the vestibule. It goes from inside the labia minora to the hymenal ring uh, or the hymen, as we we commonly call it. And this area is about the size size of a postage stamp. It's very, very small. You can think of it as a a ring or a U-shaped area at the vaginal opening but it's really really important because it contains really important structures it contains the glands that produce our natural lubrication so when we get aroused in preparation for intercourse It's the gland openings that produce the wetness there. There's also the urethra where the urine exits the body, which is important when we're talking about things like urinary tract infections. And then it also includes the bottom part of that vestibule area um, are the insertion points for the pelvic floor muscles. And so there's three really important structures in this small area about the size of a postage stamp.
0: Wow, that's really important to to understand. And thank you so much for explaining that. I can visualize it. So I think you did a really good job in making it clear. So tell us more about the, the vulvar pain then.
1: Yes, so oftentimes when we're talking about vulvar pain, we're talking about pain with intercourse or pain with sex. And so let's start there and then we can kind of broaden it out. So basically pain with sex can be either deep pain or it can be superficial pain. And the medical term for it is dyspareunia, which some people have heard of also. When we're talking about deep dyspareunia or deep sexual pain, we're talking about more internal conditions, like things like endometriosis or scar tissue inside of the pelvis or a tilted uterus or different anatomic, um, uh, more physical kind of internal conditions. However, when we're talking about superficial dyspareunia or superficial pain with intercourse, uh, we're talking about mainly the vestibule, which is that area that I just described. And that is the area where most women actually have sexual pain and they'll describe it as pain with insertion. And I would say upwards of 80% of women when they say they have sexual pain, it's located with insertion or at the vestibule, at the vaginal opening is what they're describing. And what causes it? that's the million dollar question. Okay. So when we're talking about vulvodynia, we're generally talking about pain of the vulva, meaning the external genitalia or that entrance area. The more specific term for uh, pain at the entrance area is called vestibulodynia. So Odine was the Greek goddess of pain, little known <laughs> Greek goddess of pain. It's not You're not, you're not going to find it in the major you know, references, but so is a is an abnormal pain response. And what we put in front of it tells us where the pain response is. So vulvodynia is an abnormal pain response of the vulva in general, that whole external area. Whereas vestibulodynia is a pain response of that little vaginal opening, which is way more common. And so let's concentrate on that part. So when we're talking about vestibulodynia, uh, there's generally, we can lump causes into four general categories. We can talk about hormone-related causes. We can talk about muscle-related, nerve-related, and then inflammation. And I think when you break it down in this way, it makes it so much more understandable because the problem with vulvodynia in general is that practitioners really don't know exactly where it is what it is what causes it or how to treat it and patients don't know the same things and so we're t- it's we treat it as this black box of vulvar pain if you will this black box where there's not an identifiable cause according to the definition and so if there's not an identifiable cause how are you going to find a treatment option for it and in reality the The vulvodynia, first of all, is not a diagnosis. It's a descriptor of where the pain is located, but it likely encompasses a number of of causes or pain conditions in one. And so when we lump everything together, it makes it really, really difficult to provide a true cause, a true diagnosis. And that makes it really difficult to find a treatment that's actually going to be effective.
0: So if someone comes to you and finds you as the specialist, like what would you do? So they come in, they say I have sexual pain break it down for me because I I guess I'm, I'm uh, struggling with, it's not a diagnosis.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Now this is important, but it's important to break it down in this way, because this is where we get stuck. And this is where women are Googling this and not finding the answers that they need. And they're seeing doctor after doctor after doctor, and they're not getting the treatment that they need. So when a woman comes to me and she says, I have burning, irritation, rawness, discomfort in this area, mainly with insertion, with with intimacy, with sex, but also she may have discomfort at other times too. Um, Maybe insertion of a tampon is uncomfortable or maybe it's completely unprovoked, meaning you don't even have to touch the area, but just wearing tight pants or just in general, this is an uncomfortable area for her. So the first thing I'm going to do obviously is to obtain a full history, including medications and past medical history and, and, all, and all of those things, um, a GYN history and, and so forth. And then I'm gonna do a, a physical exam. And what I'm looking for is I'm trying to determine what the exact cause of her pain is going back to those four categories. So let's break down those categories and that will give you further insight. So, you know, first of all, hormonal. So decreases in estrogen and androgens, which is mainly testosterone can cause that tissue to become irritated, dry. The glands aren't working as well. The lubrication isn't working as well. When that tissue is thin and dry and irritated, it's more susceptible to infection. And so that can cause symptoms in this area. So what can cause decreased hormones? Well, menopause perimenopause. And then in younger women, there are certain medications that can decrease androgen and testosterone levels, such as spironolactone, which is a common medication used for acne, as well as some women, a small percentage, do have a side effect with birth control pills where they have vulvar pain or vestibulodynia that is hormonally associated or related to the birth control pills that they're taking and so I can identify that based on the way that their uh, their gland, openings look in that vestibular area, if they're red and irritated and angry, and then I take a wet Q-tip and I touch those gland openings, if they jump off the table because it's so uncomfortable, then, um, you know, along with a history that goes along with that, then that helps me identify that as a potential cause. Another cause is muscle related. And so I can actually feel their pelvic floor muscles and I can tell if their pelvic floor muscles are tight and tender. And then there's other signs that I'm looking for too. If they have pain with that Q-tip test down at the bottom where those pelvic floor muscles insert, um, then that tells me that there's a muscular component to that pain. And these things can occur together. And they often do. Oftentimes someone will start to have pain for a hormonal reason. And when intercourse is painful and they start to have pain during the course of the day, And then they develop anxiety over why this pain has started or why it's occurring. And they're seeing multiple doctors and no one can figure it out. Their pelvic floor muscles often guard and become tight um, in response to that pain. And so then you have two things going on, right? You have uh, the hormonal issue with the tissue, but you also have the muscular response. And you really have to figure out both in order to get them completely better. Got it. Yeah. And then just to be complete and, you know, other causes include nerve related, and that can be the big nerves that come into the pelvis called the pudendal nerves that break into three branches and feed the entire vulvar area, including the clitoris, the labia, as well as the perianal area. And so uh, by doing a neurosensory exam, essentially just with touching with a Q-tip, I can determine if that may be a cause. And I can also press against those nerves internally to figure out if that's what's going on. Um, In addition, there's inflammation causes uh, in the tissue of this area. And when we're talking about inflammation, that's kind of a big word, right? We, We throw that around a lot. But the way that I like to think about it is inflammation can be external, or it can be internal. So when it's external, I'm talking about infections like recurrent yeast infections, bagi- uh, bacterial vaginosis infections, uh, other bacterial uh, infections that are less commonly recognized by doctors, like aerobic vaginitis, discriminative inflammatory vaginitis, pl- plasma cell vulvitis. All of these things that d- most doctors see very rarely, but I s- actually see quite often. Um, and so. Those are some external factors um, that can cause inflammation. And then there's also internal factors that can cause inflammation, things like autoimmune skin conditions, like lichen sclerosis, which is believed to be autoimmune, as well as lichen planus and um, other vulvar, what we call dermatoses or skin conditions of the vulvar area. So when you break it down in that way, uh, you can see why this becomes so complicated when we lump everything together.
0: I would love for you to just go through each of those causes and like what could be some potential solutions.
1: Yes. So when you're able to identify the cause, like you said, the treatment becomes really obvious. And that's where most people get hung up with vulvodynia because the cause is not identified. So, you know, people are thrown antidepressants or they're thrown combination topical creams to put on that area that have multiple different mechanisms from the different categories that I was describing. And then things don't get better and no one knows really why or things get partially better, but you can't really figure out how to get hundred percent better and so forth. And so when we're talking about hormones, um, it really depends on the cause. If I have a woman who's perimenopausal or menopausal, then I want to replenish the hormones in that area uh, with local estrogen, and sometimes we'll use a local testosterone in that area. If I have a younger woman um, that, or or a woman of any age actually, and I think a medication is contributing in a hormonal way, then we want to look at alternatives um, to that medication. So if a young woman is on birth control pills, and I believe that's contributing, then I would recommend a progesterone only option for her contraception or for her birth control like a implant or, or an IUD and I would uh, and I would basically give her a topical estri- estradiol which is estrogen testosterone uh, gel or cream to apply to that area to replenish hormones to those gland openings that so need them um, which is why she's having the the pain um, if it's muscular then we're talking more pelvic floor physical therapy uh, and then there's some adjuncts or some muscle relaxing, uh, helpers that I can offer that go along with pelvic floor physical therapy to release those muscles. As far as inflammation goes, it really comes down to identifying the source, right? Um, if it's, if we, if, if it looks like an autoimmune condition, then oftentimes, you know, I may need to do a biopsy to show that by pathology with, um, and then generally, we decrease uh, inflammation with a topical steroid. So steroids decrease inflammation. And so we give it locally to decrease the inflammation within the skin. um, And often things improve uh, in that way. And then sometimes it's uh, when it's external sources, it's trying to find out what the allergens or irritants, what the skin is being exposed to. Um, and that's that can be difficult. Um, it, sometimes I start really, Pretty restrictive, and then we start adding things back in um, to try to figure out why the skin, um, be, you know, is a, is allergic or irritant to a certain substance. Um, and then, yes, the nerve related that actually has been shown to that's the most research in uh, the most recently to try to figure out what that is. And there's such exciting research coming out of this. So we're actually finding that there's issues within the spine. So herniated disc with nerve impingement, something called Tarlov cysts that can occur uh, and, annular tear. There's different spine pathology that we're linking to irritation of the pudendal nerve and then to pain conditions of the vulva, including vestibulodynia, which is what we're mainly talking about pain at that entrance area, as well as clitorodynia. So some women have pain of the clitoris where the clitoris is touched with you know, gentle touch or, or a light Q-tip and they have a, an incredible pain response um, to that, which it, you can imagine can be extraordinarily um, disruptive to someone's life. And then some women actually have unwanted arousal symptoms. So they'll have this feeling of arousal that they can never really get rid of. Um, and that is extremely disruptive to someone's life. And so really finding that some of those clitoral pain conditions may be related to actually issues in the spine. Um, and they're, they're often nerve related, which, um, which makes sense. It's just something that we haven't really discovered until really the last five years relatively recently. So this area is really exploding with our understanding and it's giving women hope and relief um, and you know just really opening up this whole area of medicine where we're able to figure things out that before were complete mysteries to us
0: with what you were saying about the spine, I'll work backwards here. It just triggered a a really interesting thought for me. So I have been dealing with, so I had endometriosis and it took me four years to get pregnant because I have no symptoms and it took forever to figure it out. Right. Mm -hmm. And no one in my family had fertility issues. So even though I knew I was getting older, I wasn't like panicking. And then I like, right when I got back from my honeymoon, I happened to see my OBGYN and she for whatever reason, decided to do some tests, I guess, because of the whole six months of trying and because of my age and whatnot. And she called me right away and said, "You have to go to a fertility doctor, so I had no trying. But anyways, fast forward, I've been having all these hip issues that cannot get resolved. So I happened to go to this wonderful woman who I interviewed on the podcast. She does massage and acupuncture. And I was talking to her about my hip pain. I don't know why I brought it up. It was just a random thing. And she, she started checking me out and she's like, did you ever break your tailbone? Okay. And I said, oh, oh my God, I went skiing when I was in grad school and I fell on my tailbone, like literally on it. Cause she goes, it's the shape of an L. Mm-hmm. And she worked on it and I can now move my legs. I haven't done the full, I need to go to a PT to get fully fixed. And I had an aha about a week later. I'm like, did that trigger my endo? It's interesting. I I because you know, I I know like with endo and inflammation things like that, you're susceptible, right? So there's you're susceptible and then it triggers. And I like wanted to cry because I'm like, did this ski trip literally destroy? my fertility journey. And I mean, I am sure that th- there's a lot of questions there, but it, the, the pieces just started to fall into place. And I'm like, Oh my, no one I've gone to physical therapists. I have gone to a chiropractor, not a single person has a- asked me about my mm-hmm. tailbone
1: and <laughs> So this is interesting. So we have a questionnaire that we give all new patients, and it's something that I review prior to seeing the patient. And that is one of our questions. It's a question I ask every single one of my patients. Have you ever had an injury to your tailbone? Because we know that when there's deviation of the tailbone or injury to that area, you can actually have a lot of pelvic floor muscle consequences. And as a result, or it's a chicken and egg a little bit. But you can, right. you can also have some nerve-related issues, especially involving the pudendal nerve and so this is this is it's something that we i see fairly commonly actually um because the tailbone can be disrupted by injury childbirth you know there's so many different things and uh you know sometimes we'll have to do imaging to kind of get to the bottom of things but oftentimes i will start with pelvic floor physical therapy so it's, the nerve part is very, very interesting for a number of different reasons. I mean, it's interesting from a, an anatomy and structural and, you know, a pathology sense, but it's also interesting because there's something to be said for upregulation of the nervous system. Uh, and that part is not quite as tactile um, or as understood as well, um, but these things all have to do with each other. And also you have to think about what makes Pain, chronic pain. That's right. the other component of this. What what makes a pain condition a chronic pain condition? And when a pain when pain turns into Chronic pain, it almost has a different feel to it. Right. Um, and then you're involving more body sy- systems. You're involving a mental component um, with pain related anxiety that has to do with that, as well as a nerve component in upregulation of the nervous system. Um, so that part is very, very interesting and it's not very well understood.
0: Wow. I mean, again, like, I don't want to leap to the endo thing, but I mean, because there's so much to be understood and I don't want anyone to think if you have a broken tailbone and have endo, it's the tailbone's fault. Um, (laughs) so I don't want to oversimplify, but it it, just putting all these pieces together. Like I couldn't lift my leg for like, I mean, and she literally worked on like for five minutes and the amount of movement mobility
1: I have, (laughs) I ran a marathon with this tailbone problem. Like, it brings up a couple of things. I mean, with a lot of these conditions, it's multifactorial, right? You know, there's probably some sort of genetic predisposition going on and then there's environmental factors, there's exposure factors, you know, everything kind of comes together in a perfect storm to create, whatever it is, and however it manifests. Um, And so, you know, even though we don't understand all the inner workings of that, I think just appreciating that in the broad sense, gets you one step closer. And that's why it's so essential not to just look at these as body parts, right? Um, And that's why sexual medicine and vulvodynia, that's why there's so many different uh, doctors from different fields who are involved in this from psychiatrists and mental health providers to urologists, to gynecologists, uh, family practitioners, PM physicians, as well as pelvic floor physical therapists. And, you know, it's no one really owns sexual medicine because right. it is really, you have to have a really holistic and whole body approach. And we can't forget about our acupuncturists and our dieticians and our, you know, um, just you know there's so many components um that that really go into this and i think the more that we expand our minds and think of it in that way the closer we're going to get to the heart of the matter
0: so i wanted to run through just a couple of things that you mentioned in the breakdown of what could be causing the vulvodynia and then i really wanted to focus on like what can women do because of just some of the dynamics of our healthcare system as well as the training of practitioners So hormones. Quickly, I just wanted to acknowledge, thank you for saying what you did about the hormones and how to treat them. And also acknowledging, you know, who can get it, like especially perimenopausal and menopausal women, because, and maybe this is special to my heart because I'm 46 and perimenopausal, there's a lot of people who talk about like the end of your sex life and, and all these issues. And it's so important for people to understand Like there are solutions and menopause and perimenopause. They're not an illness. They're a stage in life. And there are wonderful things people are doing to help deal with the transition in life. So I don't want any woman to feel like they should lose hope. And so I really appreciate you giving examples of what can be done with the muscle two things. One, I did a couple of podcast episodes last season with pelvic floor specialists. And so they can listen to those to talk about details. And one highlight I wanted to make is how you were pointing out muscle relaxing. And I'd love for you to validate this. But one thing I learned last year is a lot of people talk about Kegels. And What I also learned is you could do them improperly or the wrong exercises. And people think pelvic floor means strengthen. Some people have it so strong that it's creating problems. And so strengthening or strengthening the wrong parts is not the right thing to do. And so I don't know if you wanted to expand on the hormone muscle piece based on what I just said, but I did want to be very specific and clear with women about about those and just acknowledge what you said.
1: Yes, so the important thing here is that incontinence has gotten a lot of press. Yes. It's out there, people know about it. They know about Kegel exercises. That has really come into our awareness. What has not is the other type of pelvic floor dysfunction, which is the kind that I see most often, and that is what I what we call overactive or hypertonic pelvic floor muscle dysfunction, which essentially talks about tight pelvic floor muscles. Now, when you're talking about incontinence and weak pelvic floor, and when you're talking about tight pelvic floor, both of these are weak muscle conditions. It's where the muscle is not as functional as it needs to be. You want to be in the center of that spectrum, right? You don't want to be too loose and you don't want to be too tight, I tell my patients, think of it as a rubber band. You have a rubber band that's really, really, really loose. If it's too loose, you're not able to, uh, to open and close it. If you have a rubber band that's really, really, really stiff, Same thing. It's not functional. You're not able to expand it and release it, right? And so you want to be in the center there. And so with hypertonic pelvic floor muscle dysfunction or tight pelvic floor muscles, the issue here is that these muscles are so tight and they're clenched all the time that they're not getting the oxygen that they need. And when they don't get the oxygen that they need, they produce byproducts that are inflammatory to the opening, to the vaginal opening and that delicate tissue there. And that's what causes those, those sensations, those feelings of burning and rawness, aching, discomfort that often get interpreted as a yeast infection or a type of infection, right? Because that's what our brain goes to. There's only one type of nerve receptor in that vestibular area or that vaginal opening area. So everything pretty much gets interpreted through the same frame um, as the same thing. And the thing that we're most they're comfortable with, or the thing that we're most, uh, you know, that we associate there is infection. And that's, well, and then we go to our doctors and that's the first thing they do, right. Right. Is rule out infection. The patients that I see are the patients who've been to uh, who've had swab after swab and everything is negative, but they have this feeling that won't go away this persistence of discomfort. And, you know, oftentimes it is burning related to, the pelvic floor. Okay. Um, and it forms almost like a vicious cycle. You know, you have the tightening, which leads to the burning, which leads to, and what, what do you do when something's uncomfortable, right? Right. You clench. And so around and around you go. And the other part of this is when something's burning and you're not sure why, and you're having symptoms and you don't know what started them, what do we do? We get anxious about that. We have feelings about that. And we start to attribute that to things and we start to almost catastrophize. We go down that cycle of uh, no one's ever gonna figure this out. I have an infection that no one can figure out. Um, A doctor's never going to uh, figure out what's going on with me and so forth and so on. And then that anxiety, that pain related anxiety feeds into that loop because it tightens us even further. Tell me if this
0: is a a fair statement that OBGYNs are almost like a general practitioner for women. Because what I'm learning um, is just how many subspecialists there are, and, you know, it's really about finding the right one, because even, like you had mentioned, when you were training as an OBGYN, you really became fascinated with this topic, and so, therefore, have become very specialized in it, and I think every clinician, you can't know everything in great depth. And so I want to be clear about this. This is not a criticism. I think it's just a reality of how things work. and, And women need to be aware of this dynamic so that they're making the right decisions for themselves. And so not everyone is going to live near you. Not everyone may have access to you. And let's face it, you know, centers like yours don't exist in every single city. So if a woman is struggling and they're not sure what this is, um, what would you recommend that they do? How do they get these answers?
1: So you're right. OBGYNs, and I am an OBGYN. I delivered babies for many, many years. I did sur- many different types of surgeries besides the ones that I do now. And it's really it's impossible to be an expert in absolutely everything that involves half of the population, right? Um, OBGYNs handle high-risk pregnancies. OBGYNs diagnose cancer, female cancers. Di- uh, OBGYNs are responsible for all of your wellness, <laughs> as far as uh, cancer screening and general wellness and your menstrual cycles. And it's just, it's, it's so much. It's so much. And so there's subfields fields within OBGYN. And so, for example, if you for infertility, let's let's take that as an example. If you're having trouble getting pregnant, you would first go to your OBGYN and they would try some first step approaches, right? they would give you maybe one or two things to try for a certain amount of time, depending on your age. And they're going to, um, and then if that doesn't work then they're going to send you to a reproductive endocrinology and infertility doctor, a specialist who's done additional training to bring you to that next level of treatment approaches or options. So that makes sense. Now, the problem is with vulvar pain, there isn't an established group of specialists um, that's well known that general OBGYNs can send you to. Now there is, it exists, it's just how do you find these providers? And I think there is one fellowship in this um, that's located in San Diego, but I think in the future, this will be a subfield, just like reproductive endocrinology and infertility, just like you would see an infertility doctor. Um, same thing with urogynecology. If you're having issues with it, with urinary incontinence, um, then, you know, first step approaches aren't working with your general OBGYN, then you would see a urogynecologist or, you know, a um, same thing with, with the cancer doctor or a, a maternal fetal medicine specialist for OB. And so, uh, you know, I, I do, I do feel bad for general OBGYNs because, uh, these, these, uh, conditions with vulvar pain are really, really complex as we just laid out. Um, and it's, you can't, uh, completely tackle this in a 15 minute well woman visit, Um, it would be very, very difficult. And I have tried, um, I have tried to do that in an insurance model. Um, I did that for a number of years and it was virtually impossible. Um, I I killed myself trying to do it um, because these patients require and deserve a different level of care that you can't do in a 15 minute double book slot. It's just impossible. And so um, as far as, as far, that doesn't really answer the question of where women go from here. But one thing that we're trying to do kind of just move in that direction is uh, through the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health, which is ISHWISH, we are doing education and courses for providers. Um, So we're doing a sexual pain course that was supposed to happen last spring, but unfortunately with COVID, uh, things got a little bit delayed in that, but that will come out. And that's one way that we can really educate and empower providers to give them more tools in their toolbox to help patients that come to them with this type of pain. Um, And and then I think, you know, it comes down to sometimes it is necessary to refer to somebody who does this every single day sees this every single day um, and you know, one thing that can be a little bit more accessible is oftentimes a pelvic floor physical therapist is a main component in treatment. And so for women who maybe feel that they haven't had a lot of receptiveness with providers, or you know, they're not really getting anywhere. Um, one thing that I do recommend is is consulting with a pelvic floor physical therapist um, for a number of reasons. First of all, oftentimes there is a muscular component, um, so you know, if you're kind of doing this blindly, um, you have a better shot of, of of unlocking maybe a component of this if you do that. The second thing is pelvic floor physical therapists are getting referrals from all over their area. And so they know who the um, generalists or specialists are who are interested or trained or educated in these areas. And so they can actually be a, ve- a wealth of knowledge as far as referral um, for say an, a general OBGYN who just happens to have taken courses, who's who read about this, who's interested in this, or at least has an open mind um, for, for treating this t- this type of pain. Um, Um, So that's one way of like a ground up approach of kind of getting into somebody who can be a bit more helpful. And then centers really are expanding. Um, I know with my center, we have patients from all over the country, actually from all over the world who come and see us. Um, And so, and then with COVID, one of the silver linings has been telehealth. We've been able to do quite a bit with telehealth and then having the, the patient work with kind of local providers to implement the logistics. Okay, of- and that
0: was going to be one of my questions. So if someone wanted to access your center, how would they be able to do that? And I can put that in the show notes.
1: Yes. So our website is www.vulvodynia.com. So that is super easy to remember. Um, And that's the Center for Volvo Vaginal Disorders. We have an office in Washington, DC, which is the office that I'm mainly at. And we have an office in New York um, that Dr. Andrew Goldstein uh, is mainly at. And so two main two very large cities, so easily accessible. Um, And we have on our website, we have a lot of resources. We have all of the conditions that we treat, including a little bit of education about each one to get people started. Uh, There is a vulvar pain algorithm that goes through um, basically what your symptoms are and helps you pinpoint what may be causing your pain. Um, we have a um, all full texts of all the publications um, that we have. So sometimes these articles are hard to access, but we have full texts that are completely free of all of the research that we have been involved in. So okay. that um, that is Very, very helpful. I know doctors actually who use this as a resource. Oh, I
0: I would imagine. I mean, there have been doctors who've commented on even my podcast who are like, Thank you for helping educate us on the challenges women are facing. So I I agree with you. Like the cross referencing of information, I think, is helpful. And thanks for putting that together. Because I think even the way you explained it, like, I, as a a patient, I could probably, you know, potentially, you know, in some of the cases at least if it's um, some of the stuff you described with the hormones, like really trying to figure out and categorize, because I could almost even see if I can't access someone like yourself for whatever reason, going to my OBGYN and saying, can you look at these factors and let me know your thoughts? And if they can't answer that question, I think that's even a clue for a woman that they probably need to seek other support. Um, And so I think even the way you broke it down really, really helps. What is your greatest hope for women's health?
1: Wow, that's a big one. So I really hope that patients and providers can really be on the same page with diagnosis and treatment. Um, I want to empower patients to really understand their bodies and to know the why behind what is going on with their bodies. And I want providers to be open-minded in uh, in listening to patients. And when the patient is the expert on their body, right? The provider is the expert in how bodies work. And so if we can marry the two or put that puzzle piece together, I think that we're really going to get somewhere. (laughs) And so, you know, through one of my, one of my passion projects is really education through social media. And what I really try to do is give the why behind how the body works. And, and I, I truly believe that when patients understand why they're doing a treatment or why a treatment is recommended, they're more likely to be compliant with it. And they're more likely to have that trust relationship with their doctor if they understand a disease process and how treatments are, are targeted towards that disease process. Um, and the biggest thing about this is trust, right? Um, I think that if, you know, if we don't have trust, then where can we go f- from there? Yeah. And I think trust comes from not only listening and really, really listening to the patient, I think it also comes from really coming to, to be on the same page when it comes to education.
0: Absolutely, beautifully said. Dr. Kraft, I try to limit my episodes to thirty minutes. I have no idea how we're going to edit this down because literally every word you said is so important, and I just I can't thank you enough. Like this has been eye opening for me as well, and uh, just thank you for what you do. And I'm so glad that your career evolved the way it did because we wouldn't have you. <laughs> Truly, you're awesome.
1: Everyone has a story and everyone has, you know, a reason behind what motivates them to be a patient advocate or to spread education and awareness. And I think, you know, one of the really big positives that has come out of social media is that I get to connect with people that I would have never met.